from Wondery. This is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. Next week, we'll be back with an all-new series about the two biggest names in superheroes. The Pepsi and Coke of spandex, if you will. Can you guess? DC is known for Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. And you have Marvel, of course, which has the Avengers, X-Men, the Hulk, and Black Panther, among many others. And though the rivalry seems bitter these days, Marvel wouldn't even exist without DC. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week. This week, we are wrapping up the sneaker wars, and we have two amazing guests joining us on Business Wars. But before we get to that, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to our program. We're getting such great responses from our listeners. And now, if you haven't left us a review yet, we would love to know what you think. If you have a war you'd like to hear about, any of that, just let us know at wondery.com survey. Now let's get back to our amazing guests. You'll be hearing from two people today. The first is Liz Dolan, who was Nike's chief marketing officer in the 1990s, in the midst of some of the biggest battles of the sneaker wars in the 80s and 90s. On her first day of work at Nike, I'm told she got what every new employee gets, the Nike Principles. This is what introduces the new hires to company culture. They're very specific, and they speak a lot to Nike's success and perhaps its vulnerability as well. Liz joined me from the Wondery Studios in West Hollywood, California, where she is the host of not one but two podcasts from Wondery, Satellite Sisters, and the new Workplace Advice podcast, Safe for Work. Liz, great to have you on Business Wars. Thanks so much. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. So was that a little surreal when you signed on to Nike and you received the the Nike principles, or was that something you were expecting? It was not something I was expecting. I'm not even sure I got them on the first day. It was not the most organized kind of onboarding process at Nike when I joined in 1988. Let me ask you about those Nike principles. Every employee received a set of those Nike principles when they were hired, and I gather yours are coffee-stained and and typewritten. Uh, (laughs) What was special or unusual about those ideas, or did you find them to be particularly unique? I found them to be totally unique. First of all, you were actually given a copy of a typewritten page. So he had typed this up in 1977. So even many years later, people were still getting like, Here's what Phil typed out. This was these were the big ideas. So first of all, that was fascinating to me. Uh, but there are things on this list which seem like you would take them for granted now, but not necessarily back in the day. Number one on the list is our businesses change, and I know everyone says that now. But you know, in 1977, they were they were making sneakers. Like it, the fact that he, the first thing he talked about is that companies need to embrace change. And the next one is be mm. on offense all the time. That's all about his just instinct for, for competitiveness and competitive response. So that was interesting to me. There's another whole section here that is about the internal dangers. And I think most companies don't aren't that explicit about that in the one sheet of paper they have about what the company stands for. And under dangers, he listed bureaucracy, personal ambition, energy takers versus energy givers, mm. knowing our weaknesses, don't get too many things on the platter. 
But if you look at personal ambition, that one particularly strikes me that it's a very rare founder of a company that is warning people against ambition. Because a lot of founders go out and they try to round up the most ambitious people that they can find. So this was more, again, his sense of like, if you're like on the team, then this isn't about personal ambition. This is about what we as a team are going to accomplish together. Well, now that's the key, right? I mean, he talks about personal ambition, putting that aside. He's not necessarily saying don't be ambitious. He's saying put the team first. Exactly. Yes, it's back to the competitiveness thing. But we are all in this together. So personal ambition really doesn't have any place. If you can imagine, like on a team, if there's one person where it's all about their, it's all about them, and uh, the, that team is not really going to be able to function. So, and we know that we we know all the sports cliches in business speeches now. It was it's just interesting to me that like from the very beginning there was yeah. there was that sense for what was going yeah. to become a huge company. One of the principles here that I find really intriguing, perfect results count, not a perfect process. You know, that almost sounds like a variation of what would come later with Facebook uh, saying, uh, you know, we need to move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, am, I, am I right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, when you arrived at the company, you kind of had to invent your own role and figure out how you were going to contribute. Nobody was going to make that easy for you. And it's a, you know, footwear manufacturing, there is a lot of process involved in that part of it. And I think Nike was really innovative in the the design and manufacturing part of process. But everything else, like how decisions got made, how, Mm -hmm. you know, people got moved around, all of that Mm -hmm. was very um, kind of intuitive and like on the fly. Am, Am I correct in saying, and I've heard that maybe this is just an apocryphal story, that your office was a, uh, a warehouse in Portland above a whoopee cushion store? Is that true? <laughs> well, yes. One of the offices, this again, was way before the Fancy World campus was built. Uh-huh. We were in all kinds of warehouses all over. I was in Beaverton, Oregon, but there was an office in downtown Portland over the whoopee cushion store. That is correct. <laughs> and that's where the Nike film and video department was. So they made all of the sports films and sales films and all of the stuff that we did. Uh, featuring the athletes, they yeah they were upstairs from the novelty store. Sure, downtown Portland. So so what did what did these offices look like? Because this sounds like back when you joined, the company was still very much in that sort of scrappy startup mode. Yeah. Yeah, say my office, I was at a facility called Nimbus in Beaverton, and they were just four big warehouses, Nimbus A, B, C, and D, and you would walk through them, and it's just sort of rando desks and chairs and just huge piles of shoes and shoeboxes everywhere, and it was a pretty loose operation. As a matter of fact, my first day of work, when I asked them where I should sit, they just kind of signaled at a empty space on the floor and said oh really said how about here yeah 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 it was complete hazing like go find your own desk chair everything yeah there was no i'm not even sure there was an hr did you say did you say hazing well hazing it was like it was sort of a darwinian approach to like well if you think you we're just going to hand you a desk and chair just because you work here then you might not be cut out for this kind of organization Interesting. That's really interesting. The conference rooms 
which is the the conference room where I had my very first job interview with Phil Knight, they were designed to just look like big shoe boxes. So they would say, oh, the meeting's in the orange box or the black box or whatever. But other than that, it was just a sort of a find your own space and get your work done kind of operation. That's that's really... Now, you mentioned that you were interviewed by Phil Knight, the founder and CEO of Nike. So how would you describe the man, Phil Knight? I mean, he he comes across as someone who's visionary, but also uh, shy. Is that right? Oh, super shy. Like one of the shyest guys you've ever met. There's a reason why he developed that habit of wearing the dark sunglasses in all of his public appearances. It's not because he's Mr. Cool. It's just because he really doesn't want to look anyone in the eye or have anyone look him in the eye. So he doesn't. It was always very hard to convince him to do anything in public that he didn't really have his heart into. Like if if it was speaking to a group of Nike employees, uh, sure. Like he was always up for that or, you know, meeting with athletes we were working with on new products. He was always up for that. But, you know, other than dragging him occasionally to New York when we had to uh, announce our earnings, there, there weren't that many other public appearances that he really enjoyed doing. And you know what? One of the advantages of living in Beaverton, Oregon is nobody's going to come find you either, David. It's not, there's, no, yeah. <laughs> there's no paparazzi. You're not just going to happen to bump into people uh, who are going to try to interview you on the street. But sometimes he was mistaken for other celebrities, I hear. Oh, my God. My favorite story. There was one time he had been in New York and he went to a Knicks game with Spike Lee. And, of course, they had seats on the floor and they were creating kind of a stir. And people kept coming over and asking Spike for his autograph. And they were taking pictures. And then one guy asked Phil for his autograph. And Phil, again, super shy, just very humble, too, super humble guy. He was like, you don't even know who I am. And the guy's like, oh, no, no, I do. I, re- I really do. He's like, really? You know who I am? He's like, yes, I do. He said, okay, <laughs> what name am I going to write on this piece of paper? And he said, you're Eric Clapton. <laughs> and he came home. He came home to the office, like back in Oregon. He was telling me this story. Nothing could have made him happier than being mistaken for Eric Clapton. So yeah, that's kind of how he rolls. That's beautiful. Well, you know, he, he wasn't always the Phil Knight that everyone, uh, you know, came to know. Once upon a time, he wasn't even a shoe guy. He started out as an encyclopedia salesman or something? Yes, he had a very short career sell- selling encyclopedias. I think he found his calling, David. He always really, he cared about sports and he cared about improving athletic performance. And once he found a way to do that, he never really had any other questions about what he should do with his life. One of the few, if maybe the only uh, interview that Phil Knight did was with you uh, for your podcast, uh, Satellite Sisters. Uh, he talks about how he actually seemed to have, have, have found a calling uh, eventually, but he really did uh, have to try like, uh, well, I, I, I don't want to paraphrase him. Let's, let's hear him in his own words. Well, I think uh, you kind of know it when you find it. And I think uh, the idea that you try to find it before you're 20 years old is a mistake a lot of people make. You know, people go four years to college, you know, and they think they want to, this is what I'm going to major on and this is what I'm going to be. You go to, to college to get a basic background, but you really search the calling between the ages of 19 and 30. And I wouldn't be in a hurry to find it. I would hope to find it by them 30, but not. Uh, you don't really need to find it before. And then just try. Try like hard. Try like hell. Yeah. 
And that's a clip from Satellite Sisters, uh, one of the two podcasts that you host for, for Wondery. He came from this totally different background. How did he begin to build his team, you know, as, as, as a uh, shoe mogul, if you will? Yeah, yeah, mogul. Yeah. I don't think he ever really expected to turn into a mogul. Uh, but he was just passionate about sports and he was at Stanford Business School and, you know, you're there trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. And, you know, he just got the message that focus on something that you really love where you can really make a difference. And he decided that, you know, trying to get into the shoe business and kind of reinvent athletic footwear for the American market was something he could he could really do. And, and that was well before my time at Nike, obviously. So, But I think he writes about it super movingly in his memoir, Shoe Dog, which came out a couple years ago. And those early days, people are surprised. I think people think that somehow success is preordained. And you can read that book. I'm sure you have. And you can see how close Nike came so many times to completely failing. What was he like to work with as as a manager? I would say this. I, I was thinking about this today, knowing that I was going to talk to you. I would say he was a great leader, but a terrible manager. And, you mm. know, he's sort of like the classic CEO type who, like, tells everyone what to do and here's where we're going and take that hill and gives the big speeches and holds the meetings and tells you what's important. There was, in my experience there for a decade, there was almost none of that. Uh, he sort of let the leaders of the company lead the company, you know, and the, the day-to-day management. Again, he writes about it in right. Shoe Dog. He was terrible at it. He's not he's not confrontational with people. He's not good at giving detailed direction. But he was a great leader because he could always tell us why it was important, like the the real meaning of what we were working on. I remember him telling me once that one of the most important ways that Bill Bowerman, who was his track coach at the U of O and the co-founder of the company, Bill Bowerman always described his job as a teacher of competitive response. So he was teacher of a competitive response. And I think Phil assumed that role in his leadership at Nike. It was his job and his focus to make sure we were really responding to the market, that we had our eyes on our competitors, that we knew how we could beat them. And if he felt like we did not have our eyes on what was our response really going to be to this or what did Mm -hmm. the market need that we weren't giving it, that was his main job was to kind of remind us uh, that uh, the competitiveness in the way we operated had to be uh, always in the front of our minds. You know, one of the funniest things in that very first conversation I ever had with him um, he asked me, or wait, he said, I asked him, why are you, because this was 1988, the company had been public for a while. I said, why are you just getting around to hiring a director of PR? It seems like you could have gotten to this a while ago. Yeah, and, right. And he said, well, you know, last year we got sued by the Beatles and our sales almost doubled. So I thought to myself, <laughs> if that's what bad publicity could do for us, what might some good publicity be able to do? (laughs) So it was basically, it was a learning on the job situation, David. It was, but he was also the thing I give Phil credit for the most. And I think it spread throughout the entire uh, organization. He, He was pretty honest and just frank about what he really thought. And, and that spilled into all of the kind of 
the leadership discussions. The first staff meeting I went to, everybody was just saying uh-huh. whatever they thought. I was like, I was just shocked. I had never seen that before in a big company. <laughs> it was really great. Yeah, and it almost makes me wonder uh, whether HR today would approve of all the uh, tactics, uh, all the things that it would take to sort of make Nike into the company that it's become today. What was that early company culture like? Was it uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, politically incorrect at times? Uh, at times, sure. I think it was, again, in in Shoe Dog, he writes about those early management meetings, which were called butt face meetings. <laughs> just because it was, just, it was just, wow. a, just a bunch of guys who were used to sitting around drinking beer after whatever their you know practice was for whatever team, so team they were on. So no, I wouldn't call it a frat house culture at all because people were highly disciplined. Uh, mm. You know, so many of these people had come directly out of the sports world, collegiate sports or professional sports. Right. So there right. was there there was none of that. Sure, there was you know the after hours shenanigans that that anyone, almost everyone in the company was like I don't know twenty five years old. So what do twenty five year olds do? There's some of that, but uh, but no, there was a sense of discipline about getting work done that was super impressive. People really really worked hard. There was this sense of camaraderie and and even, you know, the I think for the women in the company, we were not I never felt particularly left out of that sense of camaraderie. Mm. Do you believe that he had a high tolerance for criticism or that people were just candid or an unusual group of people or how, what do you what do you attribute that 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 to? I think that they he had sort of grown up in this sports environment where you were all on the same team, so you were focused externally. You were not competing with each other. And mm. so because you just embraced the idea that the competition was out there, not in here, it meant you could say what you needed to say, be honest, be direct uh, as often as possible. And when Shoe Dog came out, he talked about uh, being from the Sparky Anderson School of Management. Maybe we can hear that clip now. The guy on the NPR says, well, you're really a lousy manager. And he said, uh, he said, you didn't answer letters and you sent people all over the country. And uh, he said, uh, and it's even mentioned in the book. And I said, well, I may have mentioned it, but I didn't want anybody to believe it. Uh, so that... Uh, I don't know. I mean, basically, it's uh, it's a little bit uh, unique style, I suppose. That, uh, but uh, generally, it's. Uh, I went to the uh, Sparky Anderson School of Management, the old manager of Cincinnati Reds, and I asked him, uh, you know, uh, you're not treating all the people the same, and he says, of course, I'm not treating all the people the same. If Johnny Bench asked for a day off at spring training. He's going to get it. The rookie asked for a day off at spring training. I said, get your ass out on the field. What do you think he's getting at there? Well, I think he's getting at rewarding excellence. So, you know, even if you have a pretty non-hierarchical kind of environment, which, you know, back in the day we did, it was a much smaller company than now, I think he was always keen to uh, identify the talent, uh, promote the talent, and uh, give not so much a star system, but just make sure that the people who were actually more productive were getting all of the resources and all of the rewards that they needed. So... By the time you left, I guess, what, you, you had become the vice president of, of global marketing. So what changed? Did you change or Nike? Oh, Nike changed every year. I mean, it was unbelievable. The first year I was there, we did $800 million in sales. And by the time I left, um, we, did, we were doing $9 billion in sales. But even more than that, 
during that 10 years or so, we changed from being kind of a U.S. sneaker company to being mm-hmm. a global footwear and apparel company, like a big global sports brand. So every year it was like completely brand new what we needed to do, which is what made it such a thrilling place to work. What about that? Uh, I don't know how to put this into words, but a sense of place. Was there anything about uh, being in Oregon that flavored the culture at Nike? Completely. Um, I grew up on the East Coast, and when I moved to Nike, I, had, I was moving from New York City to Beaverton, Oregon. And so that's the first thing I noticed was there was something, it was super Oregonian in a lot of ways. The, and I'm not sure it's a company that literally could have grown up anywhere else. That's why it's interesting huh. to me that, that Adidas is in Herzog and Elrock. Also, not like a big capital city kind of place where you're kind of off in yeah. your own world. But I think in, in Oregon, there was there was a sense of isolation, which was good. They were they were just doing their own thing, and they didn't really care what anyone else thought. There's also a kind of I don't know pioneer spirit, for lack of a better huh. word, yeah. or yeah. we're done. We didn't write any rule. We don't even know your rules. For, so we're just that's why it says on his list here, like live off the land. I, well, it says break the rules, fight the law. My God, what kind of company do you know that does that in their founding principle? I think that is very um, pioneer spirity. So how do you think that that scale, the, the size, that mindset maybe of being the little company for, that could for Morgan, I, I guess, how do you think that played into this war with this titanic company, a, a company the size of of Adidas. Well, I think Nike always felt like the underdog. That's why I really laughed when I was listening to the first episode of Business Wars of your show, uh-huh. when somehow there was the David and Goliath part of the setup, and Nike was Goliath. I was like, oh, wait, no way. That is not the way it was in the beginning at all. <laughs> you know, little, little Nike was, we were we were the Davids, and Adidas was this interesting. behemoth. so interesting. They were the global company that, you know, we wanted to be like and also take down. So they were clearly the Goliath during the years that I was around. Now, Obviously, it's different. And uh, just like any race, the lead keeps changing. But not back in that day. We, we were David, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this. My son, was. Uh, we passed by a, a Nike store. And I think that the, 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 the feeling these days is that Nike is the giant and that Adidas is, in a way, playing catch up. And when he found out that Adidas has been around considerably longer than, than Nike, it it truly blew his mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a, a remarkable story. I guess it's good that that Phil Knight had this long haul view because, well, he faced a lot of personal challenges in in putting this company together, didn't he? He did. I think he threw his whole heart and soul into the company, and so there were all of the business ups and downs that any entrepreneur goes through, and so close to failure so many times. But it also meant he was away from his family much more than he wanted to be. And I think when you when you read uh, Shoe Dog now, you see that there were some uh, regrets about that. And also, not too long ago, his, uh, his son died in a diving accident. And right. I think that, I think losing his son just dramatically changed his life and refocused it. Let me ask you, Liz, your time with Nike, how did it change or did it change 
your life. How has your time at Nike, or has it stayed with you over the years? One thing I learned there, which has been incredibly helpful to me, is that the best thing you can do in any business environment is really be yourself. Say what you really think. And I think there are lots of companies that kind of train you out of that or you're not necessarily rewarded for that. Uh, but I feel like I really not only learned that there, but it gave me a lot of confidence to uh, to always speak my mind, always say what I really think instead of trying to read the room. And uh, that is one thing I've carried through the whole rest of my career. And I definitely learned that there. Liz Dolan, it's been a real pleasure to get a chance to chat with you uh, one-on-one. Thanks so much for taking time out and, and, and sharing uh, your experiences with Business Wars listeners. This was really fun, David. Thank you. Liz Dolan was Nike's chief marketing officer in the 90s, right in the middle of some of the biggest battles of the sneaker wars during that period of uh, the latter part of the last century. These days, Liz is the host of not one but two podcasts from Wondery Satellite Sisters and the new workplace advice podcast, Safe for Work, which are both are fantastic. You got to check them out. That's Satellite Sisters and Safe for Work. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana's diverse landscapes include dense timber forests and seafood-rich coastlines. And every step along the way, you'll find a business environment that's strong, diverse, and ripe with opportunity. Need proof? Louisiana is where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will soon put the first women on the moon. It's also where the port system delivers the most domestic cargo in the U.S. And Louisiana is home to the best workforce development program in the country. See what Louisiana economic development can do for you. Visit OpportunityLouisiana.com today. Well, after I got off the phone with Liz, I had the chance to sit down with David Meltzer. David is the co-founder and CEO of Sports One Marketing. He is also a humanitarian, author of the book Connected Goodness, and host of the podcast The Playbook, which is produced by Wondery. Here's our conversation with Dave. So The Playbook is the podcast with all the inner inner circle talent. Elevator Pitch is the TV show. It was the number one digital business show last year. Uh, it's more like a shark tank with soul. So both shows uh, complement <laughs> each other, working with uh, not only entrepreneurs, but you know we have uh, guest judges this year, uh, Danica Patrick and you know Warren Moon, my partner, just a variety of uh, Apollo Ono, just great people involved in all of the different shows that we do. So you've been watching the Nike-Adidas rivalry from really from the front lines. I mean, on the agency side of athletics with uh, athletes and sports executives who've worked closely with 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 both companies a lot of people have asked me over the course of working on this you know series what was the difference between these brands sort of cultures if you will how would you describe that that overall feel or identity of each one of these uh, nike versus adidas in, in in terms of the feel 
Sure. You know, I'll start with Adidas since they're the older of the two. And, you know, not only having European culture, a German culture to them, built from Rudy and, uh, you know, Adolf uh, Adidas there, uh, the Dossler family. But that, that tradition really carried over. And until recently, uh, you haven't seen, you know, the innovation uh, and the energy of what, what I consider Nike always had. Nike was far ahead in the United States uh, in the in the Nike versus Adidas uh, war. And now, you know, I think there's a paradigm shift. I see a lot more energy. But back then, it was very traditional. Uh, Adidas had, you know, their traditional sports. They weren't that interested, although, you know, kind of in the 80s, they got a little bit more cultural with characters, but they still carried this family tradition and they treated you like family where Nike treated you li like a star. Um, and so it was a completely different culture. Interesting. So really that American European divide, that was a real thing. Oh, absolutely. And it carried over to just the nature of how they made their money and where they made their money and uh, much more capitalistic, much less history involved where there was so much culture mm. and history with Adidas. You know, both companies have gone in big on celebrity endorsements to, to grow their businesses. Who do you think's done it better? I mean, on the one hand, you, you look at the success of Air Jordan, and it's hard to say that that's been anything short of uh, a, a phenomenal, spe phenomenally spectacular. Yeah, I think up until 2015 uh, that there is no competition. Uh, Nike, they in America... Uh, let's keep it to there too. In, in America, they did such an exceptional job of investing in the biggest and best stars uh, where they were. But now I see Adidas winning that war since 2015, uh, uh -huh. not only taking on the right sports stars with the right amount of money, but more importantly, cultural stars, influencers, actors, celebrities, of course, entertainers, uh, the whole Yeezy effect, as I call it, uh, really has taken on a new phenomenon and has, you know, pushed Adidas to a bigger market share. Uh, you know, I, I wonder about, uh, we were talking about Michael Jordan there and, and Air Jordan. Um, I guess it's safe to say that he grew Nike's business more than anyone and, and really sort of cemented its place in basketball. And the Nike endorsement was obviously a huge boost to his career too. But what do you think that did for the NBA, knowing uh, knowing the league as, as you do, do you think Nike's success had any effect on the basketball world at large? Absolutely. You know, it really was the first, uh, I think, instance of what I call the stage theory, where a company took uh, an actual league or teams or players and made a stage of that arena for their own uh -huh. brand. And what happened was the brand sometimes became bigger than the game and bigger than the individual. In fact, as you know, uh, Air Jordan is a multi-billion dollar company itself. And until recently, Adidas just took over Jordan as the number two uh, shoe brand. Uh, but I thought it was an exceptional uh, example of how a company can not only support the dollars behind the, the league, but also build the brand because they're just an extension or utilizing the game as a stage, especially nowadays with digital media, where that lays in perpetuity uh, on the internet with a variety of very clever short form videos that can be done. I see, uh, you know, that Jordan as the catalyst for, for an individual to not only save and, and elevate a brand, but that brand elevate and save the league. 
Interesting. That's really interesting. You know, there's a there was a, a point in a, a Business Wars episode in which we were sort of recounting how Nike tried to court Michael Jordan early on, and and Jordan really wanted to go with Adidas early on. Um, but he what we really sold him was when he was shown his supposed signature shoe, and and he said he didn't like it, and the guy from Nike said, "No problem, we can make it." For you, we can we can make it suit you, and that's what lit him up. It was like, wait a minute, they don't want just my name; they want me to be a partner. Now, I wonder what the reputation is out there for each company when it comes to these endorsement deals. Are are, are they known for treating players in a different way, or, or not so much? Absolutely, and, and it's shifted throughout the years. So, you know, my favorite story about Nike is along the lines of why Jordan and, and Tiger signed with Nike, and that's you know, I walk through Tiger Woods, yeah. Tiger Woods. Yeah, I, I, I walk through the campus and there's two guys on computers playing video games. And the general manager of Nike, the third guy down, Craig Cheek, said, Dave, you know what those two guys do? I said, product placement. I figured they were looking at how to put Nikes into you know these games. He said, no, that guy, that guy there is specifically for Michael Jordan. If he needs anything and we can't get it to him immediately, he will jump on even a private plane and hand deliver it to him. And that guy there is oh, wow. for Tiger Woods. And that that is the way that Nike treats their superstars and you know, created a rivalry between Sampras and Agassi when they both were Nike guys. And there's all types of different stories within Nike. Where Adidas has won is that they allow the creativity of not only Kanye, but all of the different athletes that they have in their agenda. And I think they're better known if you're going to be a second tier superstar, you know, the different people mm-hmm. that, that have signed with them, you know, it's guys that you may not know of Darren Lee and Shaq Lawson and Chris Johnson. Well, those guys actually have feedback and Nike has a reputation of kind of only focusing in on their grand champion, their, their star, you know, the LeBron James of the world where, you know, Adidas really takes care of their entire roster. I'm fascinated by this. What it sounds like almost Nike having almost concierges for their top talent is, I mean, what sort of things have you seen the companies do to keep their celebrity athletes happy? <laughs> that we could talk about on this podcast. I said almost everything, you know, this is a, <laughs> this is a cutthroat. It's not even the athletes. If you know the history and I don't, you know, know cause I haven't released all the Nike versus uh, Adidas, but you know, there's almost like corporate espionage when it comes between these two things. There is such secrecy, antitrust, uh, you know, Nike's more like a cult and I feel Adidas is more like a family. And, you know, Adidas did sway away wow. the three top designers uh, from Nike. And there was a lawsuit that got, you know, settled. But, you know, from every single aspect of the two companies, they are in constant competition. The, I, 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 you know, I'm not privy to it, but I know working for a large organization uh, that we worked on our corporate culture, I have met so many, including my ex-chief operating officer was a Nike guy for over 20 years. And even though he is now, he's the EVP of a competitor to, to Nike, he still carries, yeah. I called it brainwashed, right? He drank the Kool-Aid and I can't even say, even he looks at me strangely if I'm not wearing Nikes. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, what did they what they do to, and I've known this guy since I was in elementary school. I'm like, what did they do to one of my best friends? They've, they've completely swayed him over where Adidas seems to have this family more loyal than a brainwashed cult. You know, they, they, they 
just have this earned family loyalty. And it, and it, like I said, it stems from the top guys down to the second tier athletes in all different sports. And then even the designers and the marketers and salespeople all carry that same culture, even though they're both very big, exciting companies. That's really fascinating. That is really fascinating. So uh, I, I want to hear a little bit more about something something that people have talked to, to us about uh, from time to time about when we're talking about these cultures, that uh, there's almost a, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I'm careful about characterizing this, a dark side of Nike culture. Is that, would you say that's, is that a safe characterization? Is there a dark side of, a, of that Nike culture? There is, and if you look uh, at the litigation that has occurred, um, and I, I will tell you, you know, I ran the most notable sports agency in the world. I have one of the biggest global marketing, sports marketing companies in the world. And we get to see athletes, products, solutions. And, you know, it's been my experience that people have complained to me. Uh, and I do have to be very careful tiptoeing. But, you know, I, I've had companies come to me and say, hey, you know, that Nike has stolen this from me. And they literally told me, you know what, go ahead. You don't have enough money to do anything about it. And I, on several wow. occasions, you know, different companies have come to me and, you know, have complained that they're afraid to take things to Nike uh, because they play the bully, the big multi-billion dollar bully. Now, personally, I haven't heard that uh, about Adidas, but Nike has a reputation. And I think it's ironic, though, because factually, I do know that Nike stole, I mean, Adidas stole their three a top designers and so it's almost hypocritical to say that only nike has a dark sure. side i think american big corporate business probably all has a dark side that we may or may not know of yeah i, I and i and i totally understand that i mean uh, but it, and it's and it's interesting that you should talk about adidas uh stealing the some of the some of the top designers from nike because that was kind of a a, a turnaround moment it seems to me for adidas when it was able to tap some of that uh, uh, I don't know what was it the the, the spirit of, of of the Nike culture. Yeah, you know, and, and they gave them you know this nice Brooklyn office, and they really courted them. And I think you know it happened about the same time that we did in American football that they started realizing, gosh, if we pay you know our head coaches and our you know coordinators millions of dollars. That's almost better yeah. than spending a lot on just LeBron James, you know, and it was almost mm. uh, and it helped. I know that in, in the industry, because I work in the apparel and shoe industry and all types of aspects in sports, it's really funner because it, it carried over th this whole story and genre carried over into all kinds of fashion and sports where these designers now became not only celebrities within their own company, but they actually got paid six, seven figures uh, when before they were kind of un sung heroes now you know yeah, they're almost right. like these esports stars you, you never would recognize them on the street but they're very very powerful and and they are well known in their industry and make a lot of money well one of the ways that these designers became rock stars in their own right was uh, you know when the sneakers transcended being uh, a, a tool for athletes. I mean, it, of course, one of the ways that Adidas distinguished itself early on was getting run DMC's endorsement, which gave birth to that whole association between sneakers and, and street culture that was already happening on the street level, but that really kicked it up uh, several notches. Do you think that, that that deal in some way changed the product and, and if you look at it in the long term, maybe the customer base too? You know, it's funny because the rumor of, you know, and I'm a Run DMC fan, my Adidas, that was great. But the truth <laughs> is Ad yeah. Adidas, when Rudy and, and Adolf, you know, Dossler, when they created the company, 
uh, Adolf, who was Adi, he actually, the three stripes is exactly congruent to the philosophy of why you would take Run DMC and create content with your name in it and all the great things that they did in the 80s. He actually saw the shoe as a flag. And he said, you know, wow, if I put these three stripes on our shoes, then there'll be a flag. And he already kind of set, or I said, planted the seed of how this marketing genre mm. was created. And of course, this, this idea of Run DMC and now with Kanye, has really rejuvenated uh, Adidas and this Yeezy effect and the boost. You know, they're using the right talent in the right ways and getting what I call organic, authentic validation in the market that creates viral campaigns. Um, and if you you know, go to YouTube, I love it. I, you know, doing due diligence on my, uh, you know, for, for this show, I'm looking at all these great videos and a lot of them are just <laughs> organic viral videos that I never knew existed, but they had half a million, two million, you know, 20 million yeah. views. Yeah. It was incredible. And it's great content. And some are done just by universities. They're, they're, you know, just projects that are just turning into some great content that carries over, you know, that great song by run dmc you know it's i I wonder though how purposeful that was and maybe you have some insight on this because of course when you connect with someone like kanye west here's a guy who's expert in the digital space and 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 merging what's happening in real life with what's going on online and that transition surely has affected as you were talking about these brands reach hasn't it i mean if if what you're seeing is is this culture bleeding out onto onto youtube and other people adopting it how much of that was calculated you know by reaching out and making connections with kanye west how much of it was just a function of of where sneakers what sneakers have become in in you know in in popular life you know it's a really good point because there's always a combination of what i call independent and dependent variables and so one of the marketing strategies that both companies have is that if you look at the personalities and the relationship capital the situational knowledge of your spokesperson so it goes far farther than just looking at what following you have you know you really have to get the character and when they took on Kanye, right? And he wanted to come over. It was because of the creativity. It was actually the energy that Adidas had carried through the years of allowing mm-hmm. allowing their stars to be creative and creating their own type of future. And I think the variable involved was that they really wanted to leverage the relationship capital, which is the following that they have, but moreover, the actual situational knowledge and then let it let it go and become and grow what it is. And they give that freedom at Adidas to their stars where I think everything's much more manufactured today by Nike where they're using huge agencies that are creating manufactured uh, results. And, and look, when you have that big of a market share, there's certain, diff- certain strategies I'm sure that you utilize. And when you're playing catch up, uh, you can be more daring, more courageous. And I think that's what the world wants today is what we see from Adidas. You know, you've been really generous with your time, Dave, but I have to ask you about something that you're just touching on there. Nike, obviously king in the U.S. in terms of market share. But over the last year and a half, we've seen Adidas uh, with double-digit growth and Nike sales starting to sag. So I wonder, I mean, if, if we put a cap on this sneaker wars um, uh, perspective, I, can we say that the wars are over or do they continue? What's your take on Oh, this? no. The wars have, in my opinion, just begun and they expand 
far beyond the American borders. You know, the, the challenges, Adidas is really working hard in China and the U.S. Um, but Nike, you know, what's not known as well is Nike had their push in Europe. And they really, with their own Nike kits that they started selling, which was the main stable of Adidas, uh, you know, co- of course, in European football. Uh, but, you know, I think that this war is just getting started because the dollars overall keep growing and not only is it a you know samsung versus uh apple uh war but there's so many more competitors uh you know puma was created by rudy uh dossler himself and you have these legacy brands k-swiss other ones so they they have to not only focus in on the big war at hand and it's going to grow but they also have to be careful because there is you know with the digital world small little people can grow very quickly so they have their uh you know, re- real job set up for them when they're competing against each other, not only to not focus on what the other person's doing, but look at how many other competitors may, you know, I remember Kevin Plank coming to my office when I was at Lee Steinberg and asking for $10,000 to start Under Armour and Lee and I laughing going, how is anyone ever going to take on Nike and Adidas? Uh, so you got to be careful. <laughs> David Meltzer is, well, he's the co-founder and CEO of Sports One Marketing, uh, and so he's a giant uh, himself. Uh, he's a humanitarian, author of the book Connected Goodness, and he is host and executive producer of Entrepreneur Elevator Pitch and The Playbook, a terrific new podcast at Wondery. Uh, David, it's been a real pleasure to get a chance to say hello to you, and and thanks so much for taking time to speak with us on Business Wars. Oh, it's my favorite podcast, and I even have one, so thank you so much for having me on. Uh, That's so nice of you to say. Thanks so much. Hey, that's a wrap on our series on Nike and Adidas. If you liked our conversations with Dave Meltzer and Liz Dolan before him, you can hear more of them on their own podcasts. Liz hosts two shows, Satellite Sisters and Safe for Work. David's new podcast is called The Playbook. Hey, 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 look up in the sky. Yeah, that's right. Next time on Business Wars, we're going to be back with heroes who are larger than life and a business word that's almost as big, maybe even bigger, as we dig into the trenches with DC and Marvel. You can also catch our first war, Netflix versus Blockbuster and HBO, if you're just now joining us. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Wondery.com, or wherever you are listening right now. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. Support our show by supporting them, won't you? And thank you so much for listening. Business Wars is hosted by yours truly, David Brown. This episode is produced by Karen Lowe, executive producers Hernan Lopez and Marshall Louie for Wondery. If you'd like to hear more of Business Wars and other Wondery shows, in addition to extra content, early access and exclusive perks, you can subscribe to Wondery Plus. Go to wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. We'll see you soon. Looking for the hottest takes and the spiciest celebrity gossip? Look no further. Welcome to Rich and Daily, the all-new podcast from Wondery that's going to bring you up to speed on all of Hollywood's most current secrets and scandals. Need to know what Harry and Meghan are up to? What's the latest in Britney's conservatorship hearing? We've got you covered. I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams, and along with my bestie and fellow celeb news fanatic, Brooke Sifrin, we're bringing you the latest entertainment gossip every Monday through Friday. Is that rumor you heard about Rihanna true? If it is, you better believe we'll have something to say about it. 
So if you want to be in the know about who's been seen with whom and who's in and who's out, join us on Rich and Daily. Because we don't just listen to the rumor mill. We give you the celebrity facts as they happen. Listen to Rich and Daily on Amazon Music. Or you can listen to episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With Rich and Daily, feel the gossip. Wondery, feel the story.